Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. talk with someone who has to listen quite a bit to the investment officers around the world. Neil Duane, global strategist for Allianz Global Investors. Also, he, in addition to talking with all of the uh, asset managers around the world for Allianz, he also manages 1.5 billion euros uh, in, in several funds. Neil, I am so glad you could join us. I want to start with the idea that we're hearing about all of this political warfare going on in the United States. We're hearing about Brexit. We're hearing about what's going on with the French elections. At what point do you care when it comes to managing money? Well, firstly, thank you for the invitation to be here. I think when one's managing clients' money, one has to invest rather than what I would call trade. If you tried to respond to every headline or every tweet, I think you would simply destroy the alpha that your clients um, are uh, are going to receive. But that's that's an important point. So what's an investment and what's a trade? What's an investment you like and what's a trade that might people are going into that's that's not sustainable for you? Okay, well, well, just an example. For, for me, investing is like a rolling three-year view. I'm genuinely trying to get the benefits of companies that are compounding their returns and, and generating the investments. So a trade I like is energy. We think from the risks in the Middle East through to the, the low oil price that there's a supply uh, demand imbalance, which we think will work to energy grinding higher from here. Therefore, because of the risks in the of the geopolitics, I like the big uh, UK or US uh, uh, high dividend stocks yielding 7%. You're getting paid to run with them. I think that's a, that's a trade, but also an investment on a two to three year horizon. Whereas something I'm maybe more concerned about is the growth in China last year was phenomenal. They went back to the old school fiscal stimulus. Uh, unlike President Trump, who may spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure over 10 years, we estimate they spent a trillion dollars last year uh, on their infrastructure. So commodities have boomed. We think that's a, a, a misalignment of the recognition of the underlying strength of the economy. It's also a misalignment of how much stimulus uh, Trump may uh, deliver. The US consumes 4% of uh, global copper. China consumes 70 So even if Trump really gets stuck in over the next 10 years, it, it's not going to matter to global copper demand. So we think maybe the miners have traveled too far and therefore we would trade out of them if you, um, if you owned them. Trade out of the miners right yes. now yep. and wait for another entry point. Well, I would say the cycle hasn't finished. China's, okay. China's um, you know, rebalancing is going to change. And until you see serious infrastructure spending in countries like India and Indonesia, we don't see the underlying demand for, for, for some of these classic commodities um, uh, rising. But I, but I thought you said you were your energy sector. That you, yes. That you, did, you were bullish on the energy yes. sector. Yes. Why, why that slight disconnect, energy versus uh, commodities? Well, because everyone needs, you know, particularly given the success in, in China and elsewhere, everyone owns a car. The Americans have all traded up to larger cars rather than smaller cars. So the de- underlying demand for energy is still going to be there. It's very resilient at about 98 million barrels of oil a day. You know, Neil, I, you, as you said, President Trump is expecting to spend about a trillion dollars on infrastructure in the U.S. over the next 10 years. There is so much focus on fiscal stimulus and infrastructure spending. How do you as an investor get in on that? Well, the first thing I would say is infrastructure spending takes a very, very long time. 
Um, so even if, uh, as we discover with the um, the, the um, uh, Barack Obama stimulus in 2008, he spent a trillion dollars, but most of it went to the states and they put it in their health in, in their pension funds. So in the end, there weren't many roads or, or railways built. So we think it's a very long term, long tail investment, and it works better in emerging markets than in, in developed markets. We think the payback in developed markets is very slow. Can you imagine if you built a faster road to JFK, you'd have to shut the roads to JFK first to build the new road. So the disruption in developed markets of infrastructure is quite high whereas if you don't have a road in Vietnam and you build a road you immediately get the efficiencies of the spending so we think infrastructure is useful um, but it's it doesn't step change the growth rate of the underlying economy but is there a way that you can invest in companies that will benefit from the spending programs by investing in those you know, infrastructure plans somehow? Uh, or is that sort of too uh, esoteric? Well, I think at, at the company level, I think the markets have already run on the basis that the trillion dollars is about to be spent. So we think that the you know that the expectations in the markets are way ahead of where the actual spending is going to come from. So I would say from a strategic, long-term institutional client investor, accessing the stable cash flows of of many of the roads, rails, or ports that you can do inside infrastructure debt type structures makes a lot of sense as a way of generating a stable but relatively high yield six or seven percent return. But it's not. I think we underestimate because America or the UK are built. We underestimate how disruptive big infrastructure projects are and the fact that it takes a long time before you earn the returns. Right, right. Well, no, and all, also very interesting, uh, a, a long time before uh, you get to realize the political uh, glory for having done so. Thank you very much, sir. Neil Duane is a global strategist for Allianz Global Investors. Here to help us get a little smarter when it comes to the automobile industry is John Lippert. Here is our automotive reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, he joins us from our Chicago uh, bureau, and you can follow him on Twitter at John M. Lippert with two Ps. All right, John, with two Ps. Uh, let's get some uh, business out of the way in terms of uh, the January uh, report for automobile sales. I was just racking them up here. Some better, some worse, but year-over-year uh, year results, no one is, uh, is defying any major trends, correct? Well, that's right. There'll, there'll be some softening of the overall market, but not, not anything like a disaster. So, so what we're saying is we're looking at a, a 17.3 million annualized selling rate, and that will be down from 17.9 a year ago. So all the auto companies are saying, look, if there's going to be a cooling off, that's a cooling off we can live with. Well, yeah, and we got actually uh, some results from Ally Financial yesterday that seemed to suggest that even though there is sort of a plateauing in the auto industry, at least with respect to auto loans, that the that the credit quality isn't deteriorating as quickly as some had feared. Well, that's right, and and um, um, and now we're all trying to figure out sort of um, you know the Trump you know um, enthusiasm, just how deep rooted it is. So, um, I mean, December was an absolute blowout for um, for the auto industry, 18.4 million, and so now, so and a lot of that was just sort of year-end um, uh, closeouts. But 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 now, I mean, there is going to be some softening, and so uh, among the many factors we're going to be looking at. But um, yes, incentives are creeping up. Yes, inventories are creeping up. 
but none of it's disastrous. And as you say, uh, you know, the credit quality that we're all, you know, subprime loans, I mean, they're creeping up, but they're not soaring, right. at least so far. And well, then, you know, in terms of just January, you know, um, uh, Toyota was down 11 percent, Fiat Chrysler down 11 percent, but then Honda's up 5.9, Nissan's up 6. So it it is a little bit of a mixed bag. But but so far, the, you know, the market's holding up pretty well. Which companies stand to benefit the most from some of the trade policies, at least from what we can glean from them, uh, from President Trump's administration? Well, just taking the border tax, um, and these are all sort of crude measures because we're um, we're all trying to figure out what the border tax, you know, in what form it will actually emerge from the Congress. But if you just take a, the question of um, what companies have what percent of um, U.S. sales that they're importing, there are some clear differences. So um, uh, Ford uh, only import Ford, you know, 68% of what they sell uh, in the United States is built in the United States. And, and some companies like, you know, Mazda, you know, just to take one example, has zero. So obviously the, you know, Ford, and Ford is actually saying, we think we can live with this, you know, with the border tax as we understand it so far. And and the, the import companies like Mazda are saying that this is a terrible idea. And and sort of um, in the middle, there there's Toyota. I mean, Toyota is coming out pretty strongly saying even the um, – American-made Camry that has the most U.S. content of any car, actually, uh, that the border tax will drive the cost of that car up by $1,000. And and they're saying that uh, Toyota is saying, um, you know, consumers are just not going to accept that and that that will hurt sales and hurt employment. So there's going to be there's going to be a big fight about what exactly all this is going to mean as as it goes through the Congress. Can you give us a perspective about Ford and the relationship that may have been forged between Mark Fields, the chief executive, and the members of the Trump administration? Well, they, I mean, Ford. I mean, as as I say, Ford is 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 saying more than any of the other automakers that we can live with this border tax. They're they're vocal about saying. Um, 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 we Ford need relief from the the uh, fuel economy and emissions targets that Barack Obama put in place, and um, Donald Trump has said he's going to do all that. Uh, so that you know, one thing about the border tax, um, uh, and and we can argue if it's going to increase the price of cars and are people going to um, accept that. But there's no question from from Barclays analysts, Brian Johnson and others, that the border tax. Will on the margin create an incentive to put more factories in the United States as opposed to elsewhere in NAFTA. Well, so um, um, Mark Fields is saying that the that the overall business climate that they think will uh, evolve under President Trump is something that's going to be good for Ford. I mean, they're 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 pretty aggressive in saying that. John Leppert, thank you so much for joining us. Automotive writer for Bloomberg talking about auto sales and what effect the border tax may have on auto companies. Now we're going to get
get a chance to look at what the trade policies might look like and how an investor really deals with that. I want to bring in Scott Clemens, Chief Investment Strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman's Private Wealth Management. And Scott, you know, we've talked a lot about some of the policies. We haven't really solidified anything as of yet. It's unclear what could get through Congress, what the actual proposals will be. Uh, Scott, are you advising clients to change their allocations at this point based on what we know? No, we haven't changed any allocations, uh, partially because we're very long-term investors, partially because there's no real clarity on uh, what policies are likely to unfold. There's certainly been a lot of suggestions, a lot of threats even, um, but at this stage, until we see something more uh, concrete unfold, it's very difficult to analyze and respond to it in a responsible way. Well, Scott, given that context, uh, let's say this continues. Let's say that this is part and parcel for daily operation of the government. What would you be counseling people to do? Um, well, within the equity market, we remain positioned, as we always have been, pretty long equities for the time being. We welcome the resurgence in corporate earnings. That's the fuel for the equity market. We're watching with great interest the rise in interest rates. And I think at some point over the course of this year, as the labor market continues to improve, and we got some good data from ADP just this morning, Interest rates will continue to rise. That'll give investors in fixed income a chance to go back into the intermediate, even longer into the yield curve. We're not there yet, but that trade-off of risk and return is beginning to get a little bit more appealing. Let, so, let me just mention the ADP numbers were uh, 246, 246,000. The estimate was for 168,000. Well, but Scott, so what's the level at which you would say right. that, uh, that you would recommend investors get back into fixed income? You know, it's more of a process, Lisa, than it is an event. But the algorithm that we're using is as long as you can earn a rate of return in traditional fixed income that is higher than inflation, if you're talking about taxable bonds, higher than whatever fees you pay for a muni bond fund or whatever, uh, then the risk trade-off becomes a lot more interesting. So but, in other but words, you know, there's another moving part there. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, uh, so in other words, with a 10-year Treasury yield uh, heading north of 2.5%, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's heading that way very quickly, very quickly. The, the other interesting moving part to watch is that there have been hints as part of uh, the, the Trump tax proposals and also the House tax proposals that would limit the deductibility of municipal uh, income, which for higher tax bracket clients would have an, uh, an implication for the appeal of those assets. And again, it's one of those many things on which there are no details yet. So we're playing it safe and waiting, watching, seeing how this unfolds, because that could certainly change the relative appeal of taxable bonds versus municipal bonds, even for investors in a higher income tax bracket. Do you think that money outside the United States will flow into the U.S. in the form of investments or in terms of maybe just money buying up debt? I think we're seeing that already. Uh, you know, if you think about the, the, um, the central banks worldwide, the United States of America is the only one that's actively trying to raise interest rates. Uh, that has implications for currency strength. That has implications for return on fixed income. So, yes, I expect the flows of funds into the United States to continue. Scott, at what point uh, will yields rise so high in the U.S. that it will endanger the stock rally? 
I think we're a long way from that. The risk out there is that the labor market improves so rapidly that wages begin to accelerate rapidly. We're, we're not there yet. This is not a forecast. It's a risk. And the Fed feels like they have to accelerate their own response to that. If the Fed, for example, were to uh, raise interest rates four or five times this year instead of the three that the market is expecting, that, that would spook the equity market. That would send the signal that maybe the Fed's a little bit more worried about inflation, which hasn't been a concern for a decade now, uh, than the market is. I don't expect that to unfold, but it's certainly a risk that we're keeping an eye on. Talking about the Fed, we're going to hear from them uh, today at the end of their two-day meeting. And I'm wondering how much you're looking for guidance with respect to what process they'll follow uh, to unwind their $4.5 trillion balance sheet, or if uh, they'll start to do that in the near future. I think if is the right word, because I don't think they have any intent of doing so. And there's nothing that requires them to do so. I think the Fed would rather restore more normal monetary policy through the old-fashioned tool of raising the Fed funds rate, interest rates, and leave the balance sheet where it is at, as you said, roughly $4.5 trillion. There's something very important that happened in 2008. The Fed, for the first time, has the ability to pay interest on bank reserves held at the Fed. That's a tool they did not have beforehand. So if they are concerned that commercial bank lending might become inflationary, they have the ability to raise interest rates on reserve and therefore restrain some of that lending. It's a tool they've never used, but it's a tool that would enable them to leave the balance sheet at $4.5 trillion without having to actively wind it back down. Tell us more about tax reform in addition to your comments about income earned from municipal bonds. Tell us more about tax reform and some implications. One of the other things, Penn, that we're watching very closely, and again, it's part of the Trump proposal, part of the House proposal. The, the details are, are, are sketchy still, but one of the proposals would limit the ability of corporations to deduct interest on corporate debt issuance. That might have the implication of lowering the desirability for corporations to issue debt. <laughs> it might restrain the supply of corporate debt, and any time the supply is restrained, that has implications for, uh, for the ability of, of investors to earn a better rate of return on corporate debt. So we're watching – there's a lot of moving parts there that we're watching uh, very closely. You, corporate you, tax reform, on which there's been no progress whatsoever, does have a real ability to affect the equity market for the better, particularly repatriation tax, lowering the corporate statutory rate. These would all be very beneficial for the equity market. Thanks very much for joining us. Scott Clemens is the chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman's Private Wealth Management Division, giving us a look into what or what you should not be doing. Maybe just do nothing for a while. A change at the Supreme Court. That's in its future. And here to help us understand what might happen is Kimberly Robinson, a Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg BNA. Kimberly, thank you for being with us. Tell us, who is the Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch? 
Well, Neil Gorsuch is a longtime federal appellate court judge who sits on the 10th Circuit. He sits out of Denver. Uh, he's pretty young at 49 years old. He could make a big impact um, for a very long time to come. Um, you know, when, Senate, uh, when the Senate is going to c- consider his nomination, um, they're going to be able to check off a lot of the qualifications that we typically think of with modern-day justices. You know, he has an Ivy League pedigree. He worked for a prestigious law firm. He had, did a stint in the DOJ, and he even clerked on the Supreme Court. Um, so he's, he's got kind of the traditional um, qualifications that you would need. He has also uh, a pretty strong conservative background, um, which should get him support um, from Senate Republicans. But he also has something that uh, Senate Democrats might like as well, and um, that's that he's pushed back on the deference that courts give to administrative agencies, that's something that could look attractive to Senate Democrats um, in the Donald Trump era. Well, Kimberly, we've already heard from some Democratic representatives saying that they're going to vote against him. Uh, What measures could they take uh, to do that, or, or is his nomination all but guaranteed at this point? Uh, I do think that uh, Judge Gorsuch is likely to get nominated, but there are some tools that um, Senate Democrats could use. Um, Although Senate Democrats did get rid of the filibuster for lower court nominees, they kept it in place uh, for the Supreme Court. And so uh, they still could uh, use the filibuster and indeed some uh, Democrats have said that they plan to do that. Uh, the danger in that is that Republicans could uh, go nuclear themselves, uh, as it's called, and eliminate the filibuster um, for Supreme Court nominees, um, something that really hasn't been thought of um, in in the history of these confirmation hearings for, for Supreme Court justices. wonder if you could just speak a little bit about uh, Utah Senator Orrin Hatch and his role. Um, you know, I, I don't really know a lot about what his role will be um, in this confirmation process. Uh, sorry, I can't really speak to that. Can you then give us a little bit of an idea of what's next for Neil Gorsuch? Well, what will be next is that he'll need to fill out some um, paperwork that's been tripping up some of uh, Donald Trump's other nominees, but uh, pretty is pretty straightforward for um, judges. Uh, it's paperwork that he's already done to be confirmed. And then we'll go through, uh, likely in a couple months, some confirmation hearings where we're likely to hear questions about abortion and immigration um, and religious freedom. Well, uh, Kimberly, how much is the controversy over Neil Gorsuch uh, specific to him and his views, and how much is uh, residual anger by the Democrats that Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee, was not confirmed? Well, I do think there's still a lot of um, Democrats who are really smarting over uh, the fact that, you know, Senate Republicans didn't give president nominee uh, even a hearing. Uh, and so I, I do think that there's some uh, initial sense that Senate Democrats might try to block this nomination as sort of a payback. Um, but if Senate Democrats are playing the long game, they'll need to consider that it's 2018. The election looks pretty tough for Senate Democrats. There are a lot of Democrats who are going to be going up in uh, election in states that Trump won. And so um, it may be that the Senate Democrats may be in the minority for a while. Um, and, you know, risking a filibuster and risking that that filibuster could be uh, eliminated uh, could be something that puts Senate Democrats kind of um, on the back burner when it comes to uh, at least uh, in the near future um, 
Supreme Court nominees. Now, the Supreme Court, of course, rules on a variety of topics. Is there any understanding as to where Judge Gorsuch would reside uh, in business cases or in cases involving regulation and the government? Well, there has been some indication in those areas. Uh, as far as business regulation, um, we've seen that, you know, he's pretty hostile to uh, the idea of using class actions as a way to um, get redress from businesses. Um, and actually, he wrote a 2005 article that seems to indicate that um, he's hostile to using uh, the the courts as a way of getting civil rights litigation um, through as well. Um, But on other issues, you know, we're not as clear. Uh, Judge Gorsuch hasn't had a chance to rule on abortion, something that has been hugely important um, in this this selection. Um, We do have some hints on how he might rule, but um, we don't know for sure. I think you asked also about how he might um, interact with uh, agencies and regulations, and that would be uh, really a change um, on the Supreme Court. There has been some indication from some of the justices that they want to change uh, the way that courts look at these regulations, that they want to give a harsher look to them and have a bigger role for the courts. Um, And Neil Gorsuch would join what is now a minority um, and could turn that into a majority. Kimberly Robinson, Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg BNA, speaking with us from Arlington, Virginia. Thank you so much for for speaking with us. And uh, uh, the nominee, Neil Gorsuch, has not expressed his opinions on the hot-button legal issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. Uh, There's a lot of question about what the Democrats will be able to oppose. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.